0: Well, here's what we're going to do today. Um, I have, as we've been working our way through Nehemiah line by line, uh, want us now to kind of give a summary of what I think Nehemiah is speaking to us. Now, I want you to know a couple things. Number one, that one of the values that we have here at Crosspoint is what we call expositional preaching or exegetical preaching. By that we mean, I mean that, that I think it is it is very important that most of our preaching and teaching come from the bible from just working our way through books or working our way through passages and i I want you to understand the distinction between that type of preaching and what is called topical preaching now that has its place and in fact we do that occasionally but most of what i do is called exposition or exegetical preaching meaning taking passages or books of the bible And preaching from those and trying to bring out or draw out what the author of the inspired book of the Bible is saying rather than me just coming up with a topic and then cherry picking a bunch of verses from all over the place and kind of coming together and presenting something for you. Now, that has its time and place, but most of what we do, we want to work through books of the Bible and passages of the Bible, and we want to say what the Bible says, we want to preach what the Bible says why that's so important is because we believe here that the Bible is divinely inspired. We believe that it's God's very words to us. And so I think that when preachers get in a habit of kind of just coming up with their own thoughts and arranging the scriptures to fit what they're saying, that's really, really arrogant. Because what you're saying there is that you are trusting kind of in human wisdom more than the Holy Spirit's wisdom and putting together the books of the Bible. So um, uh, there's time and place to handle topics. In fact, this upcoming year, we'll probably handle kind of a dating and um, sex sort of talk, because I think we need to handle that here. Um, and so we'll do things like that, because there may not be a book of the Bible or a passage of the Bible that deals directly with what all we want to say. So things like that are very appropriate. But most of what we want to do is working through passages of the Bible. Today, I'm going to do a summary message, is a little bit more topical. And so Um, but I want you to understand that that's a great value to us. If we get into a habit of me just coming up, taking one scripture and using it as a diving board to talk about Brad's thoughts and tell all these little cute stories about my family and all that kind of stuff, here's what I want you to do. Leave. (laughs) Because it's not healthy for you. It's really not healthy. I'm a 38-year-old punk. I don't have enough life wisdom to drive you with my thoughts. Okay, This isn't the book of Proverbs according to Brad. We want to preach... Through the scriptures. That's important. That's very important. And um, so I hope you understand that. Secondly, there's something that I want you to know is that uh, one of the things that's a real value for us at Crosspoint is that we create a culture where, it, as Reynolds said today, it's okay to not be okay. That applies for Christians. Like, we want you to know that it's okay if you haven't the faintest idea where Nehemiah is or much about the Bible. And it's okay to even not be a Christian and be with us today. But you need to know that the perspective I'm coming from is one that I am utterly convinced of one thing. And this is what my life centers around. And this is what we center around here at Crosspoint. I am convinced that the most important thing in the world and the thing upon which everything else in my life fits is that there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be God, And lived a perfect and sinless life among us. And then he died on a cross, sacrificing himself for all humanity. And then he rose again, validating his claims as God. And so everything, it begins and it ends with the resurrection of this God-man named Jesus. And for me, that's what makes everything fit together. And so I come from a perspective that the Bible is completely true. And why do I believe that the Bible is completely true? Because there was this God man named Jesus who died and then he came back from the death, from from the grave. And so if you look, there are some hard things to believe in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I mean, bodies of water parted, bread falls from heaven, donkeys talk, axe heads float on the water, plagues come on Egypt and... In and of themselves, I would say that those stories are kind of hard to believe. But Jesus then comes and he comes back from the grave and he validates all those stories. So you know why I believe in Genesis Not because there's some Discovery Channel thing that gave us some historical factor. Not because... I don't believe in Noah because I'm waiting for some archaeological evidence of the discovery of some boat somewhere in a desert in the Sinai. I believe in Noah and the story of the flood because Jesus came back from the dead. That's why I believe it. And I also believe the Bible... What we have today is the 66 books, the 39 of the old, the 27 of the new are in fact God's words because if you came back from the dead, to me the power to superintend and preserve a book to pass it through the generations takes less power than coming back from the dead. So it's not like Jesus rose from the grave and he's now in heaven and he's like, oh shucks! You know, there was one Bible that they should have, one book they should have had and it, it, God the Father, what do we do? What do we do? If you come back from the dead, you're God. And you're powerful enough to superintend and inspire people to write and then work through some knuckleheads to get the Bible to us today. So I believe the Bible is the Bible and it's true because Jesus rose from the dead. You don't have to believe that if you're not yet a Christian. In fact, I don't expect you to believe that. But when I preach and teach here, you, you, you got to understand, I'm coming from that perspective. I'm coming from that passionate confirmation in my heart that that is, in fact, the truth. And so we invite you. We invite you into that. We invite you to consider who Jesus is. We invite you to wrestle with the God-man, who the Scriptures say came back from the dead. And if if that is true, then it means everything. And so what we do here is we invite you every week to consider that. All right, let's go. Nehemiah chapter 6. And I'm going to use that as a springboard. Then we're going to look at three words today. And these three words are gospel, community, and mission. Gospel, community, and mission. As a summary of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a story about a leader who leads a building project to go back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild this city. Because in the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people through whom he would bless so that, not just so that it would terminate on them, but so that through these people, he would be able to bless all the people of the earth. And so he's restoring these people, these sinful, rebellious people. The story of the Jews in the Old Testament is a picture of the story of the life of every individual Christian, that God is gracious, we rebel, but God restores And so God is restoring this nation back to this city so that through this city of Jerusalem they can worship and they can make the name of God great so that all the nations could receive and know and hear about the creator of the universe. And so they do. They get back into this city, but there's great opposition, both external and internal. We've spent the last four months talking about that. And I think the center verse for me personally, as Nehemiah applies to us, comes from Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 3 where Nehemiah is beginning to repair the wall and build the wall back, and as remember as we talked about in the previous months, Nehemiah faces this opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and these men come and they want to divert Nehemiah from this work, and so they're trying to get him down from the wall. And this is what Nehemiah says to them in Nehemiah chapter six and verse three: He says, "I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I go down to you?" And so today we're going to talk a little bit about why have we been preaching through Nehemiah? What exactly are we doing here as a church? And what is our mission and our focus? And the three words that I want us to center on today are gospel, community, and mission. The first word is gospel. Now, the gospel is... is Really, all we care about here, the gospel, that word gospel, is a Greek word that means evangelion, or it is evangelion, from which, by the way, we get our word evangelist from, evangelista. I guess I was destined to be a proclaimer of the good news. But this Greek word literally means good news, and it's a piece of information. A, s- a scripture that I think uh, sums this up very well in the New Testament is found in Titus chapter 3, and verse 3. And in fact, I recently memorized this verse, and it says that we ourselves were once disobedient, foolish, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so what, what that first part of that verse is saying is, is that is that the gospel is good news because the first thing that we need to understand before we can even understand the Bible and the person and the work of Jesus and what it means to be a church is that mankind is born in sin. We're born separated from God. The Bible is very clear about that in Romans. It says that all have sinned. And this sin has not merely neutralized us or incapacitated us. It has killed us. Now, we may be physically alive and emotionally alive, but the Bible is really, really clear. And regardless of what type of uh, Protestant church you come from, this is clearly accepted across all – that what has happened because of sin is that it has killed us, that mankind is spiritually dead. And so these harsh verses are, are just attesting to that fact that we are spiritually dead. And so that means a couple of things. It means that we don't just need to be helped out. We don't need a moral ethic to live life. But we, as born separated sinners, we need to be completely brought back to life. And how God does that is he does that through the person and the work of Jesus and what he did and the preaching of what Jesus did. And so that's what the next verse says. It says, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. And so this is this is in particular why it is good news. Is because the good news is is that it is not now up to you and me as to whether or not we have more rocks in our good works pile compared to the next guy. But it is solely based on what Jesus has done for us. That's the good news. That it is not human goodness but to the modern american mind that initially sounds like bad news doesn't it because we have been bought and we've bought this lie that we're basically pretty good people and so we compare ourselves to the hitlers and the saddam husseins and the murderers of the world and we don't compare ourselves to jesus but it's because of his loving kindness and mercy that he saved us that he pours out on us through his holy spirit by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit. And what that means is that you must be born again. You must God must make you new. He moves on your heart. He takes a dead heart and he makes it new. So how do you become saved? I mean, how do you, how are you born? You're born because of the decision of a father to to give you life. That's clearly biblical. That's offensive to the self-determining, proud American heart. But it's clearly biblical that you become a Christian because God makes you into a Christian. You know how my sons and my daughter became, became children in the flesh? I hope I don't have to draw you pictures, but just because, because daddy daddy made a decision. You know why I'm a Christian today? Not because I worked myself into a religious understanding, but because God made my dead heart alive. That's important. That's very humbling. It's very offensive to people that want to determine their own destiny. It's offensive to the Western mind that has bought into this ethic that we are the captains of our own soul. We are not. God is the sovereign king of the universe. And so salvation should utterly humble us. God is the one who makes us alive. That's the good news. And first, you see how that sounds like bad news? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm not in control of this gig. You, you, no, you're not. And at first it sounds bad, but actually it's very, very good because God is the one who saves you. He is the one who does it. It's not based on your morality. So that's the gospel. A couple of little qualifying things about the gospel that I want you to understand. First is that it is rescue versus assistance. We've talked about this all the time. You need to know this. We need to be continually reminded of this. We're not just here to do church services and make ourselves feel good. But God comes to rescue us, to Make dead people alive. God does it. We don't do it. C.S. Lewis, I think most of you have heard of him. Great author. Atheist turned Christian back in England in the around the World War II area. Wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, in a book called The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis said something very, very important. He said to the Western mind, to the Western self-sufficient mind. Now, he's writing this to British people in the 1940s, but it applies ever more so to Americans in 2009. He says that to the Western mind, you must preach the disease before you can preach the cure. We need to know that we're sick and we're dead and we're away from God because we think of, well, you know, if I mess up and my marriage is in trouble or I've lost my job or I've made a wreck of my life, I'll just go to church and start doing a little bit better. And we buy into this notion that that's Christianity. It's not, friends. We say this every now and again here. There's this sort of this line in our culture. You can repeat it with me. You can end it for me. God helps those who what? Help themselves, right? That's a lie. That's terrible news. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the good news. This isn't a do better Johnny situation. This is a you're dead Johnny and God makes you alive by the power of his grace and the work of His son on the cross. And the preaching of that good news. So we need rescue, not assistance. We need to realize that salvation is all-consuming. It's not just a one-time decision at an altar, at a Baptist youth group convention in the summer of, you know, 82. And now I made a confession. And now I'm I'm a Christian. And now I can kind of do what I want. It's all-consuming. God saves us in a moment. And then he calls us into this life of sanctification where we grow in grace, where we begin to see our lives transformed. And even that very process glorifies God. So we believe that everything in our life ultimately should point towards Jesus. Does this mean that we're perfect once we're saved? No. It means we're incredibly messed up, but then the rest of our life is sanctification. So it's not okay to have a confession on your lips, but to have your heart far from him. It's not okay to stay in that state. Who cares if you're a member of the church, but your life is wretched inside. It's not okay to stay like that. It's okay to begin like that, but we want to push towards this beautiful process of transformation in the gospel. So it's all-consuming. It affects my life. It affects my marriage. It affects the way I spend my money. It affects the way I talk, the way I sleep, the way I eat. It fixes everything. That's salvation. That's the gospel. The good news is for all of life, not a one-time confession or a receiving. It is everything. The Bible has very clear things to say about people that make a one-time confession with their mouth, but their life doesn't line up with it. James says that faith like that, that has no corresponding fruit, is dead and not truly, not truly faith. It doesn't mean that you're saved by works. But it means that once you feel truly saved by grace, that there will be some measure of progress and transformation in your life. And that's necessary. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The next thing under this gospel notion is, is, that, is that we believe in grace versus moralism. We're not just trying to get a bunch of people in here to do better. Right? The, this, is what, this is what moralism and religion says. It says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But grace in the gospel says... I'm accepted, therefore I obey. So there's room to not be okay in here, but there's room to pursue Jesus and live for him because of what he has done, because he's given us his character and his spirit, and now we push towards him rather than us just trying to clean ourselves up. The gospel is not moralism. It is grace. And then finally, under the gospel, and this is really, really important in our area, especially in this culture, the gospel is Jesus versus religious deism. We say the name Jesus. Somebody paid us a compliment about a year ago. This guy came and he says, man, you guys mention the name Jesus a lot. And I said, that's right. We say Jesus a lot because Jesus is important. So we use the word Jesus a lot. That was a joke, by the way. I was trying to say Jesus. See, there's this deal here in cultural Christianity in the South where there's just kind of this, it's called religious deism. There are people in, Historic denominations, and they go and they play this little game and they attend church and they never talk about Jesus and they believe in God, and it's nothing more than a cultural ethic. But if you were to talk to some of those people who probably would consider themselves Christians in a cultural sense, and you said, "But have you received Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus was the God Man who came back from the dead?" They'd go, "Whoa, whoa! I mean, I don't know about all that Jesus freak stuff. I mean, I, but I mean, I, believe, I go to I go to Humana, Humana I mean, I'm there every week. I'm I'm on the committee. I did, you know, whatever. My grandma, she, whatever, you know, my grandpa. I get a bulletin from Humana Humana. But when you start when you start talking about Jesus," And the lordship of Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just this spiritual guru. He's not just this helper. He's not this guy. He's... Remember what I said at the beginning. He came back from the dead. He's king. He's lord. He has all authority. He has all power. He has all right to say whatever he wants to. He has all claim on our lives. That's why in Acts, they say that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus divides people. It divides people from cultural Christianity and those who are truly born again. Jesus is all important. We don't just talk about a nebulous kind of thing of God here, this concept, this deity. We believe in Jesus who represents God the Father, God the Spirit as the embodiment of the Trinity here on this earth and His work and His resurrection. That's why in Acts the, the, the Pharisees told them stop speaking in that name. And so we believe very, very passionately that we're Jesus-centered people here. And that's that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And here's what the gospel does, and it moves us to our second word. It calls us into a community. It calls us to live together in such a way. See, this is so important. This is so important that we understand that what Jesus does is he then calls us into a local community expression a local faith family a local portion of his global universal body called the church or the body of Christ and so as pardoned rebels who were saved not because we were good upper middle class white people that went to a decent college and have a job with Synovus or Aflac or, or you know the school system because we you know we got some decent gear and an SUV and a brick house that's not what makes us fit together What makes us fit together is that we are people saved by grace in Jesus. And so therefore we humbly come together realizing that he's got some stuff. I've got some stuff. We're all messed up. And together we are pursuing the all-consuming global idea and, and truth of living for Jesus together. And so that calls us together in humble, gracious community. So therefore, it's not okay for us to form little factions. We're a family. We're not factions. It's not okay for us to have little clicks. I came from a church. It was a great church, but it was, you know, just there's so many inbred little subcultures in it. And anytime something would happen in the church, there'd be a group of guys that would kind of run off to the hallway before and after services. And they'd hold their little political committee in the hallway. And then they'd play phone tree with one another. That's not acceptable here. It's not acceptable for us as Jesus rescued, grace-filled, humble people to have grudges against one another. It's not to say that we won't come in disagreement, but we don't, we don't talk poorly about one another. We don't act passively, aggressively towards one another. We handle issues. And oh, by the way, there will always be issues but it's not okay for us to live in that way it's not okay for us to be grouped by socioeconomic status or by schools or by whatever it's not okay here that is not acceptable and i'm not saying this is pervasive in our community i'm just saying that hey as we grow look i have a 4 year old we're a 4 year old church i have a 4 year old <laughs> 4 year olds 4 year olds need to be reminded don't they And so we need to be reminded that Jesus calls us into this grace-filled family rather than a faction. And then, finally, on this point, this way of living calls us to be contributors, not consumers. Reynolds talked to you about that at the beginning. And we're not just talking about signing up for the nursery or something like that, but we're saying that there's a spirit with which we do life together. The way we do church a lot here in the, the evangelical Bible Belt South is we... We call a young guy into ministry, he's got some gifts, he's got some creativity, and he can speak. We get a couple of cool kids that can play the guitar and the band. And then we try and outdo the other churches, don't we? Come to our services. Listen to our preacher because he's a little bit better than your preacher. Listen to our band because they're a little bit better than your band. Come to our program because our children's ministry is a little bit. We've got an indoor play, playground, did you, we, we, we have a rock wall here at Cross Point Church and do you guys have a rock wall? Oh I'm I'm sorry. Well if you ever want to come to our church, come because we you know, we have oh you don't you don't have that midweek program? We do. So I mean, you know, I mean maybe you should come and what we do is we create a consumer class of Christians and what they do is they meet together in all the fancy restaurants. They compare, they complain about their pastor who after a couple of years has fallen out, fallen out of favor with him because they don't have stuff. And they just sort of shift, right? They shift and one church grows and then the pastor leaves and it, all the little sheep run to a different church and then it grows for a while. And then there's something happens with that pastor. He becomes an egomaniac and they leave and then they go to another little church. And you know what happens? The kingdom doesn't grow. Selfish sheep switch. And that's not what we're here to do. And so if you're waiting for us to get some stuff that you can chew up and munch and consume and burp up, this isn't your place. This isn't your place. And we're not those monkeys that dance to those quarters. But if we, like, we learn each other's names and we serve and we bless and we do life together in our homes and, and, we, and we pour our lives, our imperfect lives, to one another and we we handle hard biblical truth and we clearly delineate between what is what is what is close-fisted orthodox Christian truth and we're generous towards one another in open-handed truth and we live together in this gracious way and we don't run off after a couple of years because nye, nye, nye. we live together in gracious commitment because we want to contribute to the, to the promoting and the spreading of the passion for the glory of God in our place not just go to a place that does it a little bit better for this time in my life. That's so unhealthy and it is so prevalent. If you have a tug to go somewhere else, go. Go. But if you want to give your grace-filled, imperfect life to a group of people, and you want to find out, you you want to do the hard work to figure out where you fit, and you want to be a little courageous, and you want to come, and you want to be part of this, this simple, raw, organic Jesus tribe, then come, come on, come. Come do this with us and be part of a community. And finally, that moves us to our last word and it's mission. And it really plays off of what our heart is here as a community. Is that Jesus saves individuals by his grace. He calls them together as a community. And how they live together and how Jesus becomes more evident with the way they live together then becomes their mission because they are a people that are doing something for the spreading of the name and fame of Jesus. And these people are on a mission together. And I think that is clearly outlined in a beautiful way in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read that and then we'll be done. Second Corinthians 5 says... In verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We're not little nitpicky gossipers in the hallway. We don't hold grudges. We don't meet at coffee shops and talk about one another. We, we, we lay down our lives for one another. We, As Romans says, we try and outdo one another in doing good to one another. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18 All this is from God. Listen to this. Who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the 300 or so people in the schoolhouse entrusting to us. What a responsibility the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our mission. We want to live together in such a Jesus-evident way that through even our communities, through our friendships within this community, through the way we live out, through the way we spend the money, through the way we do life together, through the way we parent, through the way we're married, through the way we live towards one another in rugged sanctification, trying to live for Jesus, it becomes a witness to the community. It becomes an aroma of Christ that is irresistible for those that are going to come to Jesus. They can't deny it. And through us, God saves people. We are ambassadors. We implore you be reconciled to God for our sake. Verse 21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. An incredible verse. And so when I say evangelism or mission, don't we sort of get this, oh no. We're going to all have to hand out tracts and knock on doors and witness to people in the three steps. All that can be very, very good. But I think that mission for us is communal, not individualistic. The way we live together, the way we do life together itself collectively becomes a witness. And so we take our little messed up lives and we invite a friend to a small group or to a service and we don't have to play the Lone Ranger evangelism game where we're the guy. It's on you. Or we don't have to, Brad, I've got this friend. Can you talk to him? Like I'm the only guy that has the juice card. Like when I show up like Peter Pan, I come in through their window with like some gospel pixie dust. And I'm like, Pa, let me explain Jesus to you. And, and they I'm like, ah. Like as if, as if I've got some special you know, voodoo card that can, I can just tranquilize, you know, trick people into believing in Jesus. I don't have any special power to do that power of the Holy Spirit that works through community and we collectively together become contributors through see that salvation does not end on us as a cul-de-sac but it works through us as a conduit and together collectively as a rough, formerly rebellious grace-filled raw tribe of people who are arm-in-arm we are like the people in Nehemiah fighting with one another but getting over our problems Building a city, complaining about this and that, but getting through our problems. Struggling to do, to rebuild this city, this spiritual city, so that through us, God can make his name great. That's our mission. That's what we're here for. That's what I'm giving my life to. And that's what we're inviting you into. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For the example of Nehemiah. Thank you for. This beautiful. Group of pardoned rebels. This little redemptive project that we call Crosspoint. Lord, we know that the push in our culture is to. Just kind of go to the place that has the most stuff for us, that we're getting fed at, so that we can just be cul de sacs and just be filled up and consumers. That's what our culture pushes us towards. And so, Lord, would you give us the special grace to fight that selfish urge? Would you give us the special grace to be able to see ourselves as the Bible calls us as humble, grace filled, redemptive, passionate, joyous Christians that live together in this special sort of way that just transcends broken culture? That we do life together in such a way that it becomes an aroma of Christ to a lost world around us. Lord, we live in a city and in a valley that has an abundance of churches. But a complete lack in many situations of the true representation of the gospel. Lord, we say this not as a critique of our brothers and sisters who are trying to do ministry, but just as a realization and a confession that we live in an area that is far more proudly religious than it is truly Christian. And so, God, would you make our lives—not a cynical response to that, but would you put us on mission, that? we desperately want you to make our collective lives together something great for your name. And so, Lord, I say before these people, and I hope they can say it with me, that we sense that you are doing a great work among us and we cannot come down. Why should the work cease while we go down to selfishness or pettiness or self-centeredness? God, would you help us? Would you help us be a place that does great and glorious things for the gospel? And Lord, I pray these things knowing full well that I am a contradiction, a mixed bag of motives, and there are many areas of my own personal life that are still in need of transformation. I say this as a pardoned rebel still working towards you. I ask these things, and I ask that you'd purify my motive. Would you join us together as a tribe that runs hard for Jesus? And I pray it in your glorious name. Amen.